Hey everyone, I'm Megan Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome to the show that is all about uncovering the awesome in the everyday. Each week, my co-hosts and I give our favorite tips, share our best stories, and confide our true confessions as we invite you to join us in the pursuit of awesome. Hello, awesomes, and welcome to episode 42 of the show. This week's episode is brought to you by HealthyMoving.com. Later in the show, Jen of Healthy Moving is joining me to dish on what we are up to while we listen to podcasts. We have a little challenge just for the Sorta Awesome community, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Today, our favorite Hollywood housewife, Lara, is joining me to talk about a topic that is just showing up everywhere on social media right now, and that topic is true crime. So I do have a brief warning before we start the show. We have heard from lots of you that you love to listen to the show in the car or around the house and that your kids are often listening along too. And we love that. But we do want to let you know that we'll be covering some sensitive topics today. So for this episode, you might want to pop in those earbuds. And speaking of earbuds, if Sorta Awesome is bringing you a little extra awesome, into your earbuds or your wireless speakers or however you listen to the show each week, we would really super love it if you could leave us a rating and a review in iTunes. Those ratings and reviews work some awesome magic behind the scenes at iTunes and make it possible for other people to find the show. I do not understand how the Apple magic works, but I just know it does work. So pop on over to iTunes and do that for us. Okay. That is just about enough for me. Laura, I know that people would love to hear you get this show going with Awesome of the Week. Speaking of Apple, (laughs) my Awesome of the Week is a little unexpected in that I didn't think I needed or wanted this thing, and then I got it as a gift, and now I'm obsessed. It's the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch. I have so many questions about this, so I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about it. It's a total luxury item. It's the absolute opposite of a necessity in your life. (laughs) I'll just say that. And I had heard mixed reviews on it, honestly. Um, And in fact, I'm an Apple user on my laptop, my phone. I have iPads. They're all Apple. But I didn't really want the watch. Right, right. I feel like I'm trying to be less tethered to my phone instead of more tethered to my phone. So I, it just didn't even appeal to me. But then Jeff and I went to the Apple store to buy a watch as a gift for someone in our life who did want it. And as we learned more about it, I started to think, hmm, hmm, this is a little interesting. Yes, I'm intrigued. <laughs> and then, but I was actually really surprised when it showed up under the tree for Christmas. So if you don't know, like if you're not even sure how it works, which I wasn't, the Apple Watch is just a wearable. It's not its own device. It's just an extension of your phone. Okay. So the apps that are on your phone, not all of them, but a lot of the main ones are working on the watch. So you're not programming yet another device. Okay. It's only syncing with your phone. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Does it does it sync across all devices or just your phone or... 
It, oh. Well, like Evernote, for example, which is an app I use all the time, it syncs across all the devices. Okay, okay. Um, it's almost like it's not even syncing. That's almost uh, the wrong word because, you know, your your iPad syncs with your phone, let's say. Mm-hmm. But your watch is legitimately just an extension. Okay. So you can read the Evernote note that you're looking at, but it's really kind of working off your phone. Okay. So it's kind of like reflecting onto the watch what whatever activity is happening on your phone. Yes. Okay. Okay. I get now, there it. Are, there are a few standalone things that, that work just on the watch, like the timer or some of the... Um, activity trackers, you know, it tracks your steps and things like that. And those work only on the watch and then sync to your phone. So I guess syncing really is the right word, but there's not a whole ton that you do only on the watch that needs to then sync back to the phone. It's mostly an extension of your phone. But here is why I love it when I thought I would hate it is because it actually keeps me away from my phone. Interesting. Interesting. It's like the opposite of what I thought, because yeah. I'm the queen of picking up the phone just to do one quick thing. You know, I'm just going to send <laughs> one quick text. Right. But then you see that you have had an email come in. You see that somebody left you a Voxer. You see, like, whatever. And so I end up spending, you know, peeking at those things. Yes. And I end up spending 15 minutes. Yeah, you're just going to send a text. Right. Yes. And, and I do this multiple times a day. What I like about how you set it up is that it only alerts you to certain things, the things that you want. So for me, that's mostly texts and phone calls. Got it. So Got I it. get my texts on my wrist, my wrist, my wrist buzzes. And when a phone call's coming in, my wrist buzzes. You can do both of those things on your wrist. I answer my texts on my wrist. Like you type it, like you type in, like no, you don't type in. You do it by voice, and then it oh. translates it to text. Okay. And it really does work well. Okay. But I don't usually even – I don't do that too much. That's like a little Jetsons for me. <laughs> no, that's what I was thinking. It's very Jetsons. I mainly just need to see the text, you know, and then it kind of reminds me later to either respond or I just don't even need to respond. It's a text that's just – like a factual thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get the information and I move on. I don't then spend 20 minutes piddling around on my phone. Right. That totally makes sense. It doesn't seem like that, that, that it would work that way. It does seem like you would feel like you would have to pay more attention to your phone, but you can actually just like, you're just like checking your wrist and you're like, okay, that's a, that's a text I'll get back to later kind of thing. Or- right. And you can set it up to get your emails, you know, an email alert. I don't. I don't want to get emails on my wrist. Email is my lowest priority. So I don't care about emails. So I don't get those. But I do care about Voxer because that's how I communicate with my closest friends. So I do get Voxer alerts on my wrist. So I know if, you know, a conversation's happening that I want to go join in on. And I use it around the house. I've been using it a lot for, you know, three weeks now. But the even better thing is using it when you're out and about. Like I am finding that I love just keeping my phone in my purse. I know, it's like revolutionary. <laughs> Why is that like amazing? <laughs> but it really yeah. is because I can go, I can, let's say I'm doing an errand. Let's say I'm going to the grocery store and I still get texts or whatever on my wrist and I can look at my Evernote grocery list on my wrist 
but I'm not digging my phone out of my purse. I'm not keeping my phone in my back pocket, which by the way, I have been known to go to the bathroom and lose that phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it's in my back pocket because I needed easy access to it. Yes. And now I don't. I love that. I didn't even think about that, but you can just, there's your grocery list right on your wrist. That is brilliant. So it fun. Is. So it's a total, like, I wouldn't tell anyone you have to have this. It's really one of those things that, like, is a great gift to give or receive, even though it's, you know, it's pricey. It's very pricey. But, like, it's one of those things that you would never buy for yourself. But when you get it as a gift, you're kind of pleased to have it. That's sure. what's been my experience. Love it. That is a fantastic awesome. That's great. Good stuff. All right. What about you? Okay. So my awesome of the week is a book. It is a book that I have to admit I was a little bit skeptical about at first, but once I got into it, I stayed up almost all night one night reading it. When I finished the book, I went straight back to the beginning and I reread the whole thing. What? Laura, I cannot even remember the last time I did that with any book. I was like, am I a teenager again? (laughs) What's happening right now? I mean, that borders on weird. I understand that. (laughs) Okay, so the book is Rainbow Rowell's Carry On. Mm. So if you are not familiar with Rainbow Rowell, let me give you a little bit of background on her. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Some of her more well-known books are like Eleanor and Park. That's probably the one that most people have heard of from Rainbow That's the one I've read, yeah. Yeah. She's also written Fangirl, a couple of other books. It's kind of hard to talk about what genre she writes in. She's a little bit hard to classify because she's kind of YA or young adult, kind of chiclet. Um, So basically, she's my favorite because that's the intersection of my two favorite genres to read. I really, really like her work. But... Again, I was a little skeptical because it is squarely in the fantasy genre, sort of like young adult fantasy genre. So before I really talk about Carry On, I'm going to have to back up just a little bit and give some context to the setup for this book because it is connected to another one of her books. So the first Rainbow Rowell book I read is Fangirl. And that is a book that came out in 2013. It centers around a college freshman named Kath. Kath is a girl who is completely and utterly obsessed with a series of books about a young magician named Simon Snow. So the Simon Snow character and his adventures are all, um, I guess you could say they're like Harry Potter adjacent, (laughs) if that makes sense at all. (laughs) So Kath, this character in Fangirl, is so obsessed with Simon Snow that she starts writing fan fiction with her twin sister. Um, about the characters in the novels, and they kind of unintentionally create the most popular fanfic of Simon Snow on the whole internet. Quick side note, if you're not familiar with fanfic, it's a genre, I guess, or it's more like a subculture. Wait, hold on. Is fanfic a word? It is totally a word. Yeah. Well, fanfiction, but I mean, for those of us who are more fluent in that universe, (laughs) fanfic would be the appropriate abbreviation. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm with you. It sounds almost like a dirty word. (laughs) Okay. So fanfic, it is where people who um, are, people are really inspired by fictional stories, the fictional characters that are either in books, TV, movies, they take those characters and write whole new fiction stories based on what they think those characters might think or say or do. It's a whole thing. 
So you have to trust me on that. <laughs> I trust you. It's just like people imitating the original author. Right. So they take the characters. And listen, there is tons and tons and tons of Harry Potter fanfic on the internet. They they take the characters that J.K. Rowling created, pull them out, and like put them into their own little stories. Like, I don't know how else to describe it, but... That sounds terrible. <laughs> Most of it is. But some of it's really good, really inventive, okay. and really fascinating. Okay. okay I'm following you. Keep, keep getting, keep going to where we're going. Okay. So what happens then is Rainbow Rowell finishes the story of Fangirl, Kath and Fangirl and all of uh, those characters. But she wrote this in the end of Carry On that she could not stop thinking about Simon and Baz, who is his uh, sort of nemesis that in Kath's fan fiction, they uh, fall in love. She couldn't stop thinking about those characters and the other characters that she dreamed up for the Simon Snow universe and fangirl. So what she did was she took those characters and fleshed them out into an amazing, like really epic novel. The thing that I love so much about Carry On is Raoul's, the way that she commands the voice of each character. In Carry On, the narrative is all in first person, but she switches it back and forth amongst this huge cast of characters. So you get this first person perspective from the good characters, from the evil characters, from the ghost characters who show up. You get it all. And she does this consistently throughout the whole book. And every single time it switches the storytelling narrative, every time it switches to a, a new character's voice, She's just so consistent with understanding their motivations, their mannerisms, their tone. And to do that for one character in fiction, I think, is a huge task. I tried my hand at writing fiction a few years ago. Well, it's been a, a number of years ago now. Laura, fiction is hard. It's so hard. It it's is so hard. so hard. And so to be able to write um, in a consistent voice for one character is a huge task. To do it and do it convincingly for all of these characters across almost 600 pages is just, I don't know, that was a special kind of magic in and of itself. So well, so do you have to read Fangirl in order to enjoy Carry On or no? You absolutely do not. You do not. If you have read Fangirl, I think that Carry On has maybe a, a, a more significant meaning in just that you have seen kind of the roots of the story, but it is a complete standalone novel in and of itself. Okay. So yeah, it's just this great combination of all the things that we love about fantasy books. There's the chosen one trope that all of us are familiar with. There is like an avenge my mother's death storyline. Um, there's, there's a threat to life as we know it plot going on. There's the Simon and Baz story, which she writes in a way that is just so tender and so hilarious and so charming. She just did a, did a great job across the board. I looked up some of the reviews of the book. This one from Time Magazine is... Really, I mean, I, I actually could have saved us all a lot of time and just read this review because it really captures what I love about the book. So in the Time Magazine review, they wrote, it's brilliantly addictive, which I totally found to be true, a genuinely romantic story about teenagers who can't be neatly sorted into houses, coping with stress and loss and the confusion of just trying to figure out who they are. It's as if Raoul turned the Harry Potter books inside out and is showing us the marvelous, subversive stuffing inside. So that's why I left. It was so good. I was so obsessed with it. And this was really funny to me too, Laura. I was doing a little research for the show 
to know what I was going to talk about and share with you all about Carry On, I discovered that you can now find Carry On fan fiction on the internet. I can't. This is like The Matrix. (laughs) It's like The Matrix, but with less death and a lot more fun. (laughs) So Rainbow Rowell's Carry On is my awesome of the week. There we go. I had a lot to say about that. That was interesting. Let's talk about murder. Transitioning now to murder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm so excited about today's show, you guys, because it is a topic that is so hot right now, but it is also a topic that I know almost nothing about. So I'm going to be just sitting here right alongside all of you as Laura shares with us some of her knowledge and experience in this true crime genre of all kinds of media, this thing that is so hot in our culture right now. It's so hot, but it's, this is not new, even a little bitty tiny bit. It's so strange to me that everyone is talking about true crime is on the rise. (laughs) Right, because when did you start reading and, and getting into the true crime thing? Well, well, personally, I've been into the true crime thing probably since my early 20s, but world-wise or, or, here in the United States, I guess I can't speak for the whole world on this topic, but United States, it's been popular for literally centuries. Like I found some stuff that Benjamin Franklin wrote in 1734. I, right. That he was a crazy. he was a reporter, but you know, he was writing a salacious newspaper column. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. About murder, then you have like Lizzie Borden, who became sure. a huge national news story when she allegedly axed her parents. That was 1892. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Jack the Ripper, yeah. the Black Dahlia, like all of these things. And then in our lifetime, of course, 80s, 90s, you have Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Like these have been national news stories that people were really into the gory details of from the actual crime through the actual trial, just like some of the things that are popular right now. So I've, I'm finding it personally amusing that people think it's this new exploding topic when it has been, people have been interested in crime, specifically murder, specifically the human nature of evil for a long time, because even if your personality is not necessarily into the really yucky details of someone taking another person's life, which I'm not, I do not like those details. I do not like, um, I, I see why they're sometimes necessary for the trial or for explaining how horrific this thing was, but that is not my level of interest at all. And But you can still be interested in the crime and the punishment and the justice or lack thereof, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that a big reason why I have kind of stayed away from this genre is because as a highly sensitive person, I find a a lot of times I find the details to be so disturbing that I can't, I have a hard time kind of like separating myself enough to be able to read through it without being like, crazy, overly empathetic, thinking about what the victim might have gone through, what the victim's family is going through. In fact, because of that, 
I almost didn't listen to Serial. Do you remember us talking about this? How mm-hmm. I was just sure. I had no idea really what the first season of Serial, the podcast, was about. But I knew it had to do with um, a sort of murder mystery type situation. And I was just appalled because I was like, a young woman died her family, you know, is still, I'm sure, aching over her loss. And here we're listening. Millions and millions of people are listening to the whole thing being rehashed again. I was so appalled. And then I was also just sure that it was going to be, you know, really detailing and recalling all of the gory, grisly parts of her murder and all of these things until finally you were like, listen, <laughs> that's not what's happening here. And so then I finally did listen to it. But I um, I just have really kind of stayed away from a lot of things in this genre because they are very upsetting. Well, I will say that does seem to be one of the differences in some of the things that are popular right now is that they are not so uber focused on the the hardest parts of whatever the death was, right. which I think in the past, some of the serial killers I named a minute ago, that was some of the fascination was the how they did it and the torture they may have inflicted and things like that. Um, those were, that was a lot more of the focus of why people became really obsessed with these mostly men mm-hmm. killers. And that is not, I don't feel like that's as much the emphasis anymore. I think there's a lot more emphasis on motive, um, dynamics, the legal system, all of those things, I do feel like it has, that part is a shift, which, you know, a bigger shift came, uh, true crime used to be, even though it was very popular in the 1800s, early 1900s, it was very low brow. So you were not, like, it wasn't something that you would speak of in the same way you would speak of as literature, which even now it's, it's still lower brow, but a big change came when Truman Capote wrote In Cold Blood. Oh, yes, that's so true. That was a huge shift in kind of making it okay for more highbrow writers to write about these topics. And then some kind of jumped on that bandwagon because it's a moneymaker. Right. So see, isn't that funny that it's if it's making money, that means it's popular, like by definition. Mm-hmm. But people, like, don't want to say that they enjoy this. Oh, totally. Genre. Right. Yes. Um, and I think that, not that I didn't read, um, I haven't read a lot of true crime stuff from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, although I know it exists. The stuff that I have read, which is 90s and 2000s, you, there's definitely a difference between well-done true crime and less well done true crime because true crime is what reality TV is to scripted TV. Oh, that's a great analogy. Yeah. There's, I mean, if you look at literature, like some of the best, most classic literature, there's lots of murder and mystery in fiction stories. Sure. Right. Yeah. So it just makes sense that eventually people are going to want to see or hear like real examples of these same stories of evil. Oh my gosh, I never thought of it that way. That totally makes sense. Totally. Which, you know, we we started watching reality TV because it was fascinating. You see like, oh my gosh, the real people are really like this. Well, the same when people start getting into true crime, like, oh my gosh, th- these terrible things 
actually do happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But just like reality TV, there are terrible versions of this. And then there are things worth watching that make you think or, you know. Right. Yes. Okay. When we come back, we're going to dive into talking true crime that is popular right now, as well as some of our favorites from through the years. Hey, awesomes. I'm here with Jen of HealthyMoving.com. This month, Jen is offering each of you a free guide with simple ways to get healthy moving while you listen to Sorta Awesome. Jen and I are not only podcast creators, we are also podcast listeners. So we thought we would share some ways we get moving while listening to our favorite shows. Jen, what are you up to while you listen? Well, I'm not ashamed to admit that when I hear the sort of awesome intro music, I definitely channel my inner Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld and I start <laughs> dancing. No, but seriously, the reality of my life is that I work full time. I'm a wife. I've got three kids. You know, life is crazy. So when I'm listening to podcasts, I like to do some self-care at the same time. Sometimes that looks like a walk in the fresh air. Sometimes it's a calf stretch while I fold laundry and listen. And then there's other times where, let's face it, it's just time to lay on the floor with a bolster and do a hip release while I listen. How about you, Megan? What do you like to do? Well, I am almost always listening to my favorite shows while I'm getting stuff done around the house. And so I make sure to take those little breaks to check my alignment the way you taught me, Jen, and do things like calf stretches too. I also love to plug into a show when I pop the twins into a stroller and we go for a walk. So we would love to hear what you all are doing while you listen to Sorta Awesome. Tell us what you're up to or post a picture and use the hashtag awesome moves. Because Jen is incredibly awesome, one person who posts to Instagram or Twitter using that hashtag awesome moves before January 28th will be selected to receive a lifetime coaching program membership from Healthy Moving. And don't forget to also get my top five tips for healthy moving while you listen to your favorite podcasts. Head over to healthymoving.com slash sorta awesome, or you can text sorta awesome to 33444. We are back and we are talking all about true crime today. Okay, so you have been interested in this genre for a while. Where, where did you even start in it? Do you remember like some of your first books or did you see some documentaries? What, what got you interested in it to begin with? Okay, I think I was in college, maybe a little bit after I have said at length on this podcast that I'm super into dark literature and <laughs> um, <laughs> that started in elementary school pretty much after my phase of the sinking of the Titanic started to ebb. <laughs> because I was really into the Titanic. <laughs> I never knew that about you. That is awesome. <laughs> like really into it. And then, <laughs> then I started to get into sort of like horror books. This is when I was really young. And then when I was in my early 20s, what I, what I most remember is living in Los Angeles, the first year I lived in Los Angeles. I started watching Forensic Files every night before bed. I don't know how you do this. I do not understand. I would never sleep. Well, I was I was terribly scared of being murdered. <laughs> so you figured you'd watch some more forensic files to like learn where the victims went wrong. <laughs> I'm not doing I, that. I know. It's so weird. I mean, I'm sure a therapist would like have a heyday with this, but instead of <laughs> instead of making me more scared, for some reason it made me calmer oh to know gosh. everything I could know about murder. <laughs> I know. I don't know. I don't know. I used to watch court TV in the morning when it used to be called court TV. Now it's called true TV. 
And then I used to watch Nancy Grace in the evening. Oh, my goodness. I was really into it for probably, I'd say, 10 years maybe. And then I mostly started reading. I wasn't reading so much then. I was mostly watching those things I just mentioned. And then I started reading some things and I don't, I don't watch those shows anymore. I do still watch, and Jeff does too, Dateline or 2020. I love the first 48. That's on A&E, which is a show that follows yes. cops in the first 48 hours after a murder. Yeah. That's a super great show. That's that, a really, really good show. That one is one that I've watched um, pretty consistently because it's been on for a while. And I have caught quite a few episodes. I think that that is an example of some some well-done um, true crime stuff that's on TV. I love 2022. My parents are my parents love 2022. This day they watch it. So I've certainly caught my share of segments about true crime through the years on that show. But really, other than that, I, I just do not have a long history with it. So I'm so thankful that you had some kind of examples of that. The more I, <laughs> I don't know, the more I think about murder, the more convinced I am it's going to happen to me. <laughs> so <laughs> we're definitely coming at this one from some different angles here. <laughs> So are you scared of it? Like, are you, now that it's, bec- it is becoming like more mainstream, are you interested when these things come up or are you like, nope, this is not for me? I only engage with it if it's a cultural thing, like Serial, like Making a Murderer, the documentary that was recently released on Netflix. If people are talking about it, I will go ahead and engage with it. But to just sit down with a, a true crime story to watch a show that's based in that, absolutely not. Not for me. And still still not, even though you've done serial and making a murderer and stuff? Yeah, no. I, you know what? Because I like the conversation around those things, and I don't want to miss out on that. But that's what the draw is for me, is the, pe- the conversation part of it, the connecting with other people and what other people think about it and their arguments and... Uh, opinions and guesses and critiques. I like that part of it. Do you have a moral dilemma around? I I have to tell you, I I have let go of a lot of it. But when Serial Season 1 first came out and there was just like people were losing their minds over it, there was this undercurrent of backlash of people very self-righteously like, how dare you? This is somebody's life. And I was definitely in that. And then I started listening and I was like, I'm going to let go of those moral platitudes and completely binge the whole first season. (laughs) Because, I mean, I think Serial Season 1 is a great example of very well done true crime that is interesting, that's engaging, that's not overly salacious. I I think they did a fantastic job with that. They do. I mean, I have some reservations theoretically about using someone's tragedy or a family's tragedy for entertainment purposes. But I also don't view it as entertainment anymore. I I mean, I think I did. There was a time in my life that I said where I was super into it. But even then I wasn't like, ooh, this is fun. Another murder. Like that was never my attitude towards it and is definitely not my attitude now. I don't I don't like the word entertainment because it's not fun. I think it's interesting. You know, if you were super interested in third world poverty and, you know, how things came to be and how they could make them better and whatever, and you read everything you could get your hands on that, I don't know that you would call that entertainment. 
Right. Yeah, that's that's a good distinction. And and that's a terrible thing, you know, that that you would are interested in. Maybe you're interested in the history of it, maybe you're interested in the solution to it. But you would never be like, my entertainment is third world poverty. And that's right. that's why I don't like the word entertainment. It, it just the word entertainment does not apply to all things true crime. That's good. That's a good distinction. I, I like that. That helps me definitely get off my high horse about <laughs> some of this stuff. Now, I talked about Making a Murderer, which you and I both watched. In fact, I started watching it because I read in your newsletter that you had started it. I saw it on Netflix. It had the word murder in it. I was like, I can't watch it. <laughs> but then I saw that you were watching it. And so I thought, okay, we'll give it a try. So Kyle and I watched it. And in your newsletter, you did preface it with the fact that the, especially in the beginning, the first few episodes, it's a 10 episode documentary series on Netflix. If you're not familiar with Making a Murderer, first few episodes move at a pace that is very slow. I kept going like, why, why are we doing this? But you just, you power through and the story kind of takes off a, a little, little, it's still pretty slow. No, that thing should have been four episodes max. Okay. Yeah. It was not 10 episodes worth of watching. Well, one of the, and we don't want to spoil it. I mean, lots of people have, have watched it at this point. And it's kind of almost to the point where like, if you haven't watched it yet, you're maybe you're not going to, cause it's having its moment like right now. Um, so we don't want to spoil it, but it, it does, it deals with a, a murder case, but more than solving the mystery of the murder in this documentary, it, it more closely examines the criminal justice system in America and how a, two particular defendants, how their trials played out, definitely presented from the point of view of the defendants in this case. And that has garnered a ton of criticism from people in questioning, you know, is this responsible uh, filmmaking? Is it what, what could they have done differently to create a different documentary that might have been more well balanced? Do they have a responsibility to create a balanced piece of work? Or are all documentaries in some sense, started with a slant or a bias? So what are your thoughts on that? Because you definitely had a maybe a more harsh critique of the series as a whole than I did. I didn't love making a murderer and it's so popular right now in a way that irritates me because I think if you are interested in true crime, there's so much better out there to read and watch than making a murderer so much better. And I'm talking filmmaking, storytelling, all the parts. It definitely had a slant. All documentaries have a slant. And I think most true crime, though not all, also have a slant. And you'd be surprised at how often the slant is from the point of view of the defendant. Hmm. Because it's less compelling to read about like, and then a bad guy <laughs> killed a good girl. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's not that compelling of a story. So a lot of times the angle might be, and then he was wrongfully imprisoned or... I don't know, whatever the angle is. And so there is a vast difference between serial, and I believe Sarah Koenig did have her own slant there, and making a murderer that has its very obvious slant. Now, both of them, there are questions of innocence or guilt of the defendant. They both have that. But 
Serial really gets into the who killed Heyman Lee. They analyze every aspect of Hay's day, Adnan's day, Jay's day, motives, DNA. They do all of it's really more classic in that way. And I think really interesting to people because I feel like serial tells you a lot of the missing things that you want to know. Making a murderer, on the other hand, gives about three and a half minutes to the victim. Right. Yeah. And the whole thing is predicated on these injustices in the legal system. Now, I will say when I watch it, there are some shady, major shady things that go down with the cops, the defense attorneys, the defense investigators, um, possibly the prosecutor, possibly the jury. There's like a lot of legal shenanigans happening <laughs> in making a murderer. Yes. Yeah. So I think as long as you're prepared to understand that this is a legal story and not a murder story, maybe that documentary is more satisfying. Sure. But for people who are going in with more of a serial type expectation of like wanting to get into the mind of a killer or not, right? That that is not what's happening in Making a Murderer. Definitely, definitely. And if you look at just the title itself, Making a Murderer, it's really, I mean, it gives you your first big clue that they're going to be focusing in on one, the main guy, the main defendant in this murder trial and some of the circumstances leading up to the murder that could have possibly caused him to become somebody who could take another human's life. And then the case as it plays out, was he made to be a murderer by, you know, the powers that be basically in this county in Wisconsin. So I think that because of those legal shenanigans that you referenced, I think that is what is eliciting so much conversation about this, because I think it, if nothing else, it has started some some really great conversations about just like what exactly happens in the court system with these major crimes. For example, towards the end of Making a Murderer, there's some talk about the appeal system and these defendants going through the appellate courts. And I was like, is this America? Is this how this works? And I talked to an attorney friend and he confirmed like, yeah, that's that's what the appeals court does. They're, they're doing what they do. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> so that is... A very interesting part of it, even if it's not all directly related to the actual true crime at the center of the case. Focusing on the legal part of it is really different than focusing on the crime. And one of my problems with making a murderer was you just know nothing about the victim. You know nothing about her family, the impact you know, nothing beyond this family. I get why they did that as filmmaking, and I get why our sympathy was supposed to be towards the Averys. This community really ostracized this family in a lot of ways, and they set that up in the beginning of the documentary. I'm from a small town. I understand that that really does happen, and that really can screw someone sure. in the justice system if they come up before a judge and it is maybe not their first time there or it's not the first time with someone with their last name there right. and why that is unfair. I totally get that. But where I think making a murderer missed is showing us 
as an audience sort of all sides of that. They just tell you the community hates this family and we just have to take it on their word. I wish that they had brought in different perspectives. I just, that, that documentary, I just, I did not feel like it filled out. It, it, it shot in a really specific tunnel and it wanted you to follow them down the tunnel. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's a good point. And that is definitely at the root of a lot of the critique and criticism of that particular explosion of popularity for making a murderer. So to go back to Serial just a little bit, one recommendation that you made on the show a number of episodes ago was to check out the podcast Crime Writers On, which is a panelist of four crime writers talking about Serial, the podcast Serial. Apparently, did they start at the very beginning of season one? I, no, I think they started like four episodes in, they said, or something. Okay. So they started back when season one was running. Well, Serial has since released season two. And when they did, I went directly to iTunes and immediately subscribed to Crime Writers On because I was so looking forward to this time actually getting to listen to people break down the story in real time as it was coming out. Oh my gosh, Laura, that is one of my favorite recommendations from you in a long time. That show is so interesting. I I mean, I have to confess that I honestly... For season two of Serial, I'm looking more forward to each new episode of Crime Writers On than the actual episodes of Serial season two themselves. Is that terrible? Am I an awful no, person? A couple of people have, have said that, and I agree. I'll just leave it at that. I agree. <laughs> well, season two is a, it's definitely taking a different approach. Serial has, and I think they made this point on Crime Writers On, Serial has only ever promised to unfold a story across a series of episodes. Now, season one was a true crime story. Season two, this case of Bo Bergdahl, uh, the American soldier who deserted his post and was captured by the Taliban for five years and was exchanged for Taliban prisoners under big question mark circumstances. That's what's unfolding on season two. I'm having a little bit of a hard time getting into it, but I'm not really, like, I do not like military stuff kind of as a rule. It's just not that interesting to me. Um, but I do love Sarah Koenig's storytelling. And I, I think that it is, it's, it's an interesting story, but I love the breakdown and the commentary from the panelists at Crime Writers On. Each of them have such distinct personalities and distinct uh, perspectives on the story as it unfolds. They actually also did a bonus episode on making a murderer that I found to be really illuminating and really interesting as well. So I'm so thankful that you threw that recommendation our way because I have been loving it. Yeah, they're great. They really are. I tend to agree with, in the analysis portion, I tend to agree with Toby Ball. Of who's course kind you of, do. <laughs> who's kind of the naysayer. The other three are like, he's innocent. Let him go. And Toby Ball's like, no, he did this. Yeah. <laughs> that is so funny. I hear so many of your opinions matching up with his because he is definitely a skeptic. Yes. Of of a lot of things. So. But that's still a great it's still a great podcast. It really is. It really is. So, since you are so good at throwing recommendations our way, what do you have for people who are like maybe more interested now 
than they ever were in the past in the true crime genre because of the success of season one of Serial, because of making a murderer and some other things that are really coming into the public eye right now. I know with your extensive history in this genre that you must have some things that would be maybe be good approachable starts for somebody who is new to the genre. Well, one of the things that I've been recommending for over a year now that came up when Serial spawned all these articles about what to watch next, what to listen to next. If you love Serial, you'll love this. <laughs> One of the things that I found is a documentary called The Staircase. And you've probably heard it mentioned. It keeps being recommended. And I'm just going to further the recommendation here. It's a 2004 French television miniseries. Oh, wow. But the murder happened here in North Carolina in the U.S., but um, the filmmakers were French, and it was made as a miniseries for a French station. The victim is a woman named Kathleen Peterson. The accused is her husband, Michael Peterson, who claims he found her dead at the bottom of the stairs. Okay. There was blood everywhere, all over the staircase. So much blood. More blood than one would think <laughs> you would receive from a trip down the stairs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, and then there are lots of twists and turns and theories. What makes The Staircase so great as a documentary is this pretty fairly unprecedented access that these French filmmakers had to the courtroom, to the meetings between Michael Peterson and his lawyers, to the family. It's very interesting. I can't even imagine how they got this access because it, you just you don't see much like this on American TV. It's really, really interesting. And it doesn't it's pretty biased in that the access is mostly to Michael, Michael Peterson's side, but it does show you the other theories. It does bring in motive and thoughts, and there's some very questionable things about Michael Peterson, and they go ahead and lay those on out. It was fascinating. And my recommendation to, if you do watch The Staircase, do not Google it first. Do not see where the case is now. Do not do anything. Just watch it. Okay. Where is it available? Is it on Netflix or any streaming or? I got it on Amazon. I think you can okay. stream it on Amazon. Okay. Okay. Yes. I have heard that one coming up over and over again. And I had no clue. Thankfully, I never did. Check it out. Laziness wins again. <laughs> I never Googled it. I had no idea anything that you just said. So that is super fascinating. We will totally have to look into that. Another one that I hear coming up over and over again is The Jinx. Have you seen that? I watched The Jinx. That came up last year. Um, it was on HBO. It followed this really wealthy man named Robert Durst who comes from a wealthy family. He obviously has a lot of mental illness and appears to have gotten away with at least three, possibly four murders. And it's gotten away for various reasons, possibly because his family's wealth, mm -hmm. you know, bought off certain things or, you know, legal loopholes, that type of thing. It's a little slow, not as slow as making a murderer. And there's a big bombshell drop in the last 20 minutes of the last episode. And it is... Such a big bombshell that the filmmakers sort of accidentally caught with their microphones. And it is such a big reveal, if you will, that it's almost worth watching the whole thing just for those last 20 oh, minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
However, my book club girls and I got into this discussion over the weekend. The ethics of the Jenks are quite the quandary for me because ostensibly these filmmakers received this bombshell and then did not turn it over to any authorities. Oh, wow. For years. So and it looks like on the surface, I'm not making direct accusations, but it looks like they valued their documentary possibly more than they valued justice. Oh, wow. That is quite the ethical quandary. So, so that one I feel a little sticky about. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, what else? What else do you have to tell us that we should check out? The best thing I have read in ages in true crime is Columbine by Dave Cullen. Now, fully get that Columbine, this is a sensitive topic with gun control, school shootings. This is a very, very hard topic. This book will blow your mind. It is so good. If you're highly sensitive and you do not want to read the awful, terrible details of the actual Columbine shooting, he lays it out in both the beginning and then minute by minute in the end. Those are very, very difficult to read. I think you can skip those and still have the meat of the book in the middle, which is the analysis. And what is fascinating about Columbine, I did not want to read this book, by the way. Um, Even I, who has an interest in this genre, was very nervous about this topic. A book club person chose it several years ago. What is fascinating about it is you think you have a working knowledge of what happened at Columbine. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you don't. Almost everything we think we know about Columbine, and I just mean this pop culture-wise, is wrong. The direct eyewitnesses got things wrong. The cops got things wrong. The families got things wrong. There's been so many stories that have been over sensationalized or under sensationalized about the Columbine shooting that are not true. The trench coat mafia, that wasn't actually a thing. Like there's so much that we are told by the media in the first 48 hours probably of a crime happening that then just gets stuck in a person's mind. Oh, these boys were bullied. Oh, they snapped. Oh, they were really into video games. Like all these things that you then attach to this really horrible thing. And even if they get corrected on the record later, later, they are never actually corrected in culture psyche. Right. Yes. So when I was reading Columbine, I just was like, it has changed the way I hear news reports now. A hundred percent. I mean, it has increased my skepticism because you're like seeing like people who actually watched this happen said the wrong thing. Yeah. Wow. That, I'm just I'm sitting here just processing all of that because that it is definitely one of those cases where you think, you know, at least the basic facts and just thinking about how it actually really made me think back to making a murderer and how it seemed that. It seemed the prosecution was using the press to release things about the case because of what you just said, of how the human brain works, how we access media and how that stuff sinks into our brains in determining and remembering for ourselves what we think happened. And if other agendas are happening at the same time, for example, at the time, 
with Columbine was the rise of awareness in school bullying. So it was very easy, even though, of course, bullying is a problem, it was very easy to attach, oh, these kids had no friends, they were bullied. Those things are not true. Interesting. Uh, Eric was actually very charming. He had a job. They had friends, girlfriends. Uh, Dylan, the sort of sidekick, um, did have some mental issues and was probably very depressed. But the things that you think about and generalize about this crime that then there were copycat crimes of it after, and we are still living in the terrible tension of these things. When you read Columbine, you'll be like, we are getting things wrong. Super interesting. It is so interesting. And then my favorite writer of true crime, which I've talked about on the show before and actually have mispronounced his name on the show before. And now I'm going to attempt to say it correctly. Okay, let's hear it. Is Vincent Bugliosi. And he wrote Helter Skelter, which is about the Manson murders. Charles Manson, that's a whole thing too that we didn't even get a chance to touch on. Well, P.S., Charles Manson's not the person who murdered all those people. What? (laughs) You didn't know that? I don't, I know. Again, I don't really engage a lot of this stuff. So I do what you were just talking about. I take little snippets that I hear here and there and I put it together in my mind and then I think I know what happened. Charles Manson was not even present on the night. He had those seven people killed. He's just the mastermind. Okay. But people call them the Manson murderers. Yes. As if he committed this terrible thing. I mean, he's he is he is terrible. I'm not I'm not taking away. You're not here to be a Manson apologist. <laughs> no. I'm not I am not taking away from the depths of Manson's mind here. But that book, Helter Skelter, is so good. Now, it does have gory parts. The beginning is very, very gory. will not be for highly sensitive people. But then it goes into – it actually does take a legal uh, approach to spelling it out. But it's just very, very well done. He's fantastic. And then if you kind of do want a more high-minded type of look at true crime, then of course, I'm just going to go back to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Such a great read. Oh my gosh, it's been years since I read through that. But definitely, it's it's really a great blend because it's Truman Capote and he does take a literary approach to the story. So there's the whole reading experience of it that you get when you read great literature. But at the same time, the story that unfolds too is just, mm, it's good stuff. Definitely a great read. Well, we would love to hear all of your true crime thoughts. If you have been listening to Serial, if you've watched Making a Murder, if you are a longtime true crime fan, or if you have, like me, hardly ever dabbled in this genre, we want to hear all about it. So come and find us on social media so we can keep talking about this after the show. Laura, where can we find you all around the web? I am still at HollywoodHousewife.com, linking out to all my channels. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Hollywood HWife and Facebook as The Hollywood Housewife. Okay, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome Meg. Come talk to us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash Sorta Awesome Hangout. Or on Instagram, you can find the show at Sorta Awesome Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Sorta Awesome was created by me, Megan Teets, and is produced each week in collaboration with Kelly Gordon, Rebecca Hoffert, and Laura Tremaine. 
Visit us on the web at SortaAwesomeShow.com, where you can sign up for the show's newsletter, connect with the Sorta Awesome community, and find show notes for each episode of Sorta Awesome. Music is provided by the band Prager. Find out more at PragerMusic.com. We'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life sorta amazingly awesome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.